0: Christ Church, we come to the final sermon in my series on the five solas of the Protestant uh, Reformation. Uh, and as we do so, we're going to look at a couple of different texts. Uh, I want to ask you to turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 1, first of all. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and then we'll go to Romans 11, uh, and then 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Uh, Ephesians 1, Uh, Romans 11 and 1 Corinthians 10. First of all, we'll read from Ephesians chapter 1 uh, and verse 3 and following. Please stand for the reading of God's Word as we consider soli Deo Gloria. Please hear the Word of God, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption, for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, uh, turn over with me to Romans, Romans chapter 11. I trust many here will forget most of what I say tonight when we actually come to Romans 11 in my Romans series. But we are going to meditate for a few minutes on these verses. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, familiar verses to many of you, I would assume. 1 Corinthians 10:31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask that you would grant us eyes to see the ears to hear. And we pray that as Christ is proclaimed and your glory is declared, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would comfort us, that you would remind us to the end for which we live and exist. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We love our confessional heritage, of course, not simply because we want to revel in some kind of hankering after uh, the, the, the glories of days gone by. Um, but we love our heritage because it exalts God. Uh, it's, a, it's a heritage that makes uh, much of God and sort of puts us in our Place. I remember when I first came into the Reformed faith and began to read Reformed books and talk to respected Reformed leaders. It, it kind of blew me away because where I was at the time, it, there just seemed to be a lot of hubris. Uh, a lot, not that, it do, not that that doesn't exist at times in our own tradition, of course, but there seemed to be a kind of glorification of man and ministry rather than putting the focus on the glory of God. And when it comes to man, recognizing that in and of ourselves, we are depraved. And all we can say is it's by grace alone that I am saved. Uh, I am what I am by the grace of God. In our own tradition, the opening question and answer of our shorter catechism is what is the chief end of man? Kids, you remember this one? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is... To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him forever. See, the kids know it better than the adults, see? <laughs> to glorify God. That, that is the chief end of man. In other words, that is why we exist. It's to that end that God created the world and created us for His own glory And then, in case you think all Presbyterians are just a bunch of grumpy guys, it says, and enjoy him forever. We are meant to experience and to know the joy of the Lord. We enjoy fellowship and communion with God. That's what heaven is going to be to the fullest. To know the fullness of joy at God's right hand. Psalm sixteen, but this focus on the glory of God, on the preeminence of Christ, it is uh, in many ways, in, in broad evangelical uh, circles, it is it's becoming very and already is sort of marginalized. Uh, the focus is on on mankind, uh, the, uh, the 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 weightiness of God's presence in the life of the church is is not there because we are uh, so focused on techniques and gimmicks in order to fill the seats. We withhold the harder things from God's word because we think they will be damaging to visitors or uh, might cause unnecessary offense. But when we come face-to-face with God and with his word, as the people of Israel did at Mount Sinai, you see what happens. Moses, you go. We'll stay here. We're good. We'll stay here. You go. And when uh, the mountain smoked, the people trembled and were filled with fear. But you see, as James Montgomery Boyce said, quote, we need a renewed awareness in the church of the reality and presence of God over and against the preoccupation with man and his felt need that has overwhelmed so many of our churches. He goes on to write, There is a necessary balance, of course. Theology involves both God and man, just as good preaching must speak to the head and to the heart. But people tend to extremes. And he writes that the pendulum today has clearly swung in the direction of man-centered theology, worship, and church life. People come to church, if they do it all, with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude, and the tendency has been to reorder the message and life of the church to answer that question. It's insightful. And so a question is asked, what do the people want? And the people respond and say, this is what we want. And so the message and the ministry is actually in response to the people's felt needs. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, which I will warmly recommend to you, God in the Wasteland, says this, The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, His grace too ordinary, His judgment is too benign, his gospel too easy, and his Christ too common. When we come to this last sola, soli deo gloria, it really is a summary uh, of of all that we have spoken of so far in terms of the end for which God created the world and the end for which God sent his son. It's all to the praise of, of his glorious grace. It's what we see there in Ephesians 1 stated over and over again is to the praise of his glory. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did God save us? To the praise of his glorious grace. That's the end. Well, again, the title of this message is Soli Deo Gloria. It's it's living the doxological life. The doxological life. Doxa, of course, is is Greek for glory, and logos is Greek for word. It's a word of glory. Doxology, a doxological life, is living a life to the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This should be the greatest prayer and desire that uh, in our lives. That every aspect of our lives, our walk with God, our our work, our marriages, our families, our hobbies, that in all things, God would be glorified. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Our goal this evening, as we seek to unpack a bit of Romans eleven, is to consider afresh uh, and anew how big and how glorious and how awe-inspiring God is. It's so important, isn't it, Psalm 4610, to be still and know that he is God, to, to reflect upon just how great and, and, and glorious God is so that we can say, yes, to God be the glory. Um, it may be that a small and shallow view of God uh, has been the main ingredient uh, in uh, what today amounts to a Christianity uh, that is a mile wide and an inch deep and it's more about our comfort and amusement than about the greatness and the majesty and the all-encompassing glory of the triune God. Uh, I, I once heard Steve Lawson say this, and it probably was from Spurgeon. Uh, everybody says all good quotes. Go back to Spurgeon at one point. Um, but he said, you know, hard preaching makes soft hearts. And soft preaching makes hard hearts. Spurgeon readers over here. That's, that's the truth. And so when there's faithful preaching that's going out... That's declaring the the greatness and the majesty and the sovereignty and the holiness of God and and the payment for sin and the reality and and depths of of sin and and the extent of sin in our lives in our mind our will our heart our our affections then then we see the remedy is Christ uh, that God sent His Son into the world the the sin was so so pervasive in our lives and and has separated us from God that God had to send His Son into the world to remedy this, this problem, this massive problem that would leave us in a place of perishing in hell for eternity. These things, they, of course, cause us to reflect upon the greatness and the glory of God and the gospel. We began in week one, of course, looking at Sola Scriptura, that the Bible alone is the authority for faith and practice uh, because God's Word is inspired, uh, uh, inerrant, and sufficient. Uh, we should be intentional about how we uh, submit to it and, and, and uh, utilize it uh, in the lives of our families and our congregation and personally. Solus Christus, in Christ alone we are saved. Salvation is through Christ alone and not through any other plan, person, or religion. Sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. Uh, Salvation is by grace alone and not because of any goodness that is inherent in us. Sola fide, faith alone. Salvation is by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not through any good works. And faith itself is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We don't, we're don't. we not born with faith. We don't create faith. Faith is a gift from God that is given to us at the moment of our regeneration, of being born again. And then finally we come to soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory for it all. God is alone to receive the glory for what he has accomplished in his magnificent plan to redeem his people. I always enjoy seeing athletes when they're being interviewed after a big win where there is such an opportunity for them to just bask in and to take all the glory. And sometimes you see that and you're kind of embarrassed for the athlete, you know. So what do you think about this? You've just won the championship. What do you think? I'm just great. I I knew I was going to do this. It was just I knew from the moment I stepped on the practice field in preseason, I was going to do this. And here we are. And you're like, whoa, just taking it all in. I want the glory. And then there are those who you might think say something like that, that would say something like that. They say, the first thing I want to say is all glory and praise be unto God. For without this, none of this. Without him, none of this would happen. And I want to thank my parents for all their heart. And they go through and they thank their coaches. And all the glory is going away from them to God and giving credit uh, to others. And we see that is a heart that is redeemed that wants to respond in that way. Well, if you'll turn with me to Romans 11, I want to reflect for just a few minutes tonight uh, on this marvelous section of, of Romans that really is... Is a, a, a transitional a transition from uh, the doctrine in Romans one through eleven to uh, the practical Christian living of Romans twelve through sixteen. That's a a, a bit of a, a hard break there, um, but that's generally what we see in Romans. Romans one through eleven filled with glorious doctrine uh, and uh, indicatives, and then we see the imperatives of Romans twelve uh, through sixteen. But the first thing we see. In Romans 11, are the depth of God's riches considered. The depth of God's riches considered. Look at verse 33 with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Considering the greatness of God's nature and his works in both creation and redemption, Written out in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul here is overcome, it seems, with joy and intense enthusiasm for the glory of God. It is everything about God himself and his inscrutable ways that leads him to proclaim this doxology of praise. This praise is not uh, uh, mainly about what God has done, but who God is. Now he's, he's of course, moved through uh, Romans 1 through 11, uh, uh, explaining what, what Christ has done, what God has done, what the Spirit has done and is doing in our lives. But here he's reflecting on the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and the mysteries of, of God and his, his glory. It is everything about God himself and his inscrutable ways that leads him to proclaim this doxology of praise. I remember a few years ago when I preached through the attributes of God. Uh, What uh, a wonderful season that was to just week after week reflect on a different attribute of God. It's uh, something we all should do as Christians regularly. There are some good books out there whereby we we can do that. But this evening, we're going to look at these few verses and reflect upon God and be still and know that He is God. Paul states that one cannot even begin to plummet the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God's judgments, he states, are unsearchable and His ways are unfathomable. First of all, Paul mentions the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. How do we even begin to... To contemplate such a subject as the wisdom of God. What words can we use to describe God's wisdom? Perhaps the best way to explain or define God's wisdom is to say that it is God's inherent ability to always know what are the best means to bring about the best ends. God always knows the best means to bring about the best ends. God's wisdom always and every time directs all things toward His purposes, which are, in the big picture, bringing glory to His name and innumerable blessings to His redeemed people. And this is what we need to remember, dear ones, when we get the call from the pathologist that's not good news. This is what we need to remember when there are difficulties that arise. That God in His wisdom, as He is putting together uh, this mosaic of your life and each piece is being put in different... And we see just a part of it, just a small part of it. But recognizing that in God's wisdom, He is putting this entire thing together. And we can trust Him. Romans 8.28, all things happen for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. doesn't say most things happen for the good. It says all things. The wisdom of God is not only God's ability to always know what are the best means, to bring about the best ends, but also can be understood as the truth that leads a person to salvation and guides him down the path of a God-honoring life all of his or her days. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Remember how Paul speaks to Timothy here, uh, describing biographically that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's not only in the Bible that the pure wisdom of God is revealed, but also in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, it is said, is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. He's the Word made flesh, John 1 and verse 14. And then we see in 1 Corinthians one twenty one where Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, now listen, Christ the power of God and the what? The wisdom of God. Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is of the same substance and equal in power and glory with the Father, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's why we preach Him. That's why the apostles preached Christ and Him crucified and risen, because He is the power of God and He is the wisdom of God. And the gospel itself is the operative power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And again, in 1 Corinthians one thirty. But by doing, by excuse me. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That is united to Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Of course, this wisdom from God is in direct contrast to the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom that's in our own hearts—the fallen wisdom of man. The wisdom of this world will rarely, if ever, lead us to make decisions that will ultimately bring glory to God. Look at what the wisdom of the world is doing right now in our culture. The wisdom of the world is bringing extraordinary confusion. Challenging any notion of common sense. Or of reality. This is the wisdom of the world. And so often we find the wisdom in our own hearts failing us because it is tainted with sin. The wisdom of this world will rarely, if ever, lead us to make decisions that will ultimately bring glory to God. And it is the same when it comes to our own fallen reason and wisdom. So in order to stand firm in God's grace and grow in our understanding and how he would be pleased for us to serve him... We must, by his grace, prayerfully pursue God in his word and continually ask for the light and understanding of his wisdom from above. And God gives us a wonderful promise that if we ask him, he will give it to us. James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Next, we come to the riches of God's knowledge, don't we? Have you ever once considered just how knowledgeable God is? He knows everything. It's it's astonishing when you think about the fact that He knows everything and He still loves us. I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I'm going to quote one of the characters from the new Ant-Man movie. It's not in my notes. One of the characters can read minds. And as soon as he was introduced to this group, they said, you can read minds. He said, yes. And he said, stop thinking that. Oh, that's gross. Yes, it's a terrible, it's a terrible gift to have that I can read minds because he's reading minds and he's seeing all the mess in people's minds. Can you imagine? God knows everything. He knows every thought. He knows every deed. He knows every time you were planning on doing something and you didn't, perhaps for selfish reasons. He knows everything about you. And yet, what does he do? He loves you. He holds on to you. He's patient with you, you who are united to his son. God knows everything. He knows how many grains of sand exist on every seashore. He knows the number of hairs and the heads of of the billions of people that live on this earth. He knows the deepest secrets and thoughts of everyone. He knows everything about everything and everything about what could potentially be if things were different. God has perfect insight into every detail of every person, place, and idea that exists in the universe. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Glory be to God. Oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. When we consider them, we are quickly humbled and we realize just how sublime God is in his wisdom and knowledge but Paul doesn't stop there he he goes on to speak of the unsearchable judgments of God it's related his judgments are related to his wisdom and knowledge God's judgments refer to the divine des- decisions which are all rooted in his eternal and sovereign purpose whether God is judging a situation or a person he is always judging correctly he is perfectly just Because unlike the judges in our legal system or in this world, he has perfect wisdom and knowledge concerning all things. He never gets it wrong. In the last judgment, he will not get it wrong. He will get it right. God is perfectly just because he is perfectly wise and omniscient. Think of the depths of the riches of God's wisdom, the vastness of his knowledge, how unsearchable are his judgments, and finally, how unfathomable his ways the unfathomable ways of god the inscrutability of his ways flowing from god's perfect wisdom knowledge and judgments are his ways the things that he does nothing that god does is half hazard or on a whim like us we are always doing things in a half hazard way or on a whim His ways or the means by which he brings all things together for his glory are impossible for us to completely understand, which is why we must live by faith, trusting that God does know what's best. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We all sometimes wonder why God is doing the things that he is doing. Particularly in times of trial and suffering. Sometimes, as in Job's case, we don't ever find out why. But are called to place our faith in the one who is all wise. You remember when Job wanted to know why all these things were happening, God said, where were you? when I taught the eagle to fly, and so on and so forth. He never got a a, a direct answer to his questions. God just reminded him that he is God and he is to be trusted. Robert Haldane was an eminent Scottish minister who stated rightly that, quote, multitudes receive the testimony of God Only so far as they can satisfactorily account for all the reasons and grounds of his conduct, when measured according to the petty scale of their limited capacity. How unbecoming in such a creature as man. In other words, it demonstrates a small view of God to think that God's greatness and his character and ways is limited to our ability to understand it. Just because we may not, with our finite minds, be able to fully comprehend something about God that has been revealed to us in His Word does not mean that what has been revealed is untrue or not worthy of our attention. Paul spent 11 chapters writing about the profound and glorious nature and works of God in creation and redemption, and when he came to the end of it, he could not resist the urge by the Spirit to respond in worship, demonstrating his thankfulness and praise that God is who he is and in his loving kindness has rescued his people from the bondage of sin and death. Up until this point, we have considered the depths of God's riches. That is his wisdom, knowledge, judgment, and ways. And this naturally leads us to the contemplation of how different we are from God. God. We have here the creator creature distinction contemplated. Verses 34 and 35, look there with me. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become God's counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back? To him. Again, you remember the hymn we sang this morning, Give Praise to God? It's based on these very verses, and these questions are there. The first two questions are taken from Isaiah 40 and verse 13. And the third is a quotation from Job 41, 11. These three rhetorical questions are meant to bring the reader to three negative responses. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has become God's counselor? No one. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No one has. No one has. These questions lead the believer to root his faith in the sovereignty and self-sufficiency of God and not in his own fallen reason or the godless wisdom of this world. Dear ones, here we are taught as was Job in the latter part of that powerful book, that God needs nothing, is dependent on no one and no thing, and is totally and utterly blessed in and of himself, and in himself is all sufficient. The Westminster Confession of Faith beautifully clarifies the grandeur of God when it says this in chapter 3 and paragraph 2, God has all... Life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone. The fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men, therefore, and every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require of them. What a statement. To God be the glory. One of the greatest, if not the greatest activity you can engage in dear ones, is the contemplation of God. Who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. By doing so, you will not only expand and renew your mind as a Christian, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the verses right after this, be renewed in your mind, but you will see what so many fail to see on a day-to-day basis, and that is that God is indeed worthy of all, all the glory, and mankind is not. That God is all wise, and that mankind is not. That God knows all things, and mankind does not. That God is infinitely glorious and worthy of our worship. Man and this world are not. Amen? A big view of God. Will radically change the way we live. For one, we will no longer be manipulated by what the world worships or determines is worthy of all of our time, resources, and energy, but our hearts and minds will be consistently filled with grateful praise and joyful confidence. This brings us to the culmination of this doxology. Look with me again, starting in verse 33. This sentence, this inspired sentence, is probably the most God-glorifying declaration in all of Scripture. For it puts on display the incomparable excellencies and majesty of God. Let's glance at it quickly. From Him are all things. Think about this in terms of creation and redemption. From Him are all things. Something cannot come from nothing. It's one of the greatest apologetics for the existence of God. Something cannot come from nothing. And so when we see the world around us, we know that it has come from God. He spoke it into existence over the course of six days. And on the seventh, he rested. From him are all things in creation and in Redemption, God is the source of our salvation. Salvation comes from Him. The grace of God comes from Him, as does Scripture, as does Christ, as does faith and glory. All things good come from God, the Father of lights. What do we have that we did not receive from His sovereign hand? From Him are all things. Through Him. Are all things Through him are all things. It is through God that we have creation and redemption. God is not only the source of our redemption, but he is the one who accomplishes it. Through Christ, he has purchased the redemption of his people. Salvation is from him. It is through him. And finally, it is to him. As his creation, it's to him because it gives all glory to him. It is for the end of giving glory to God. So to him are all things, from him, through him, and to him. All those whom he created and redeemed for his glory will glorify him forever. And that is the chief end of mankind, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. And doesn't each sola fit nicely into these categories? Scripture is from Him. It's through Him by His Spirit. And it's to Him. as to the re- redounding of His glory. Christ is from God, sent from God, through Him, that is the Holy Spirit incarnation, and to Him. Faith is from God. It is through Him, given and sustained by the Spirit, and to Him, to His glory. Grace is from God, through Him, accomplished by Christ, to Him. Here's what a correct view of God does. It sets us on a path of a God-centered life where we give God the glory that is due His name in every area of our lives. It impacts the way we work, the way we worship, the way we approach the trials and triumphs of our faith. And so we should never forget and make it a part of our thinking as Christians that salvation is revealed through Scripture alone, accomplished by Christ alone, initiated, sustained, and completed by grace alone, received through faith alone, and it's all to the redounding praise of God's glory alone. Holding to these truths, making them a part of the very fabric of our thinking will transform us more and more into doxological Christians, those who live unto the end of the glory of God. It should be our first prayer waking up in the morning. Oh, Lord, help me to live for your glory today. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. Let us seek to bring God's glory so that, as Paul says in, Roman, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Pastor, you're saying that, that's, that eating and drinking should be done to the glory of God alone? Also, Yes, everything. Whether you, that's the point. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous text. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways, for from you, O God, and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. And we ask, O God, that you would be pleased by your spirit to work in our hearts, that it would be our desire by your grace to live grateful lives, redounding to your glory, giving you glory, seeking to give you glory and all that we do and all that we say, and all that we think, that our worship would reflect your glory, that we would contemplate you and meditate upon you and your glorious attributes, that we would not forget you, but rather that we'd remember you and your glory and seek to, to glorify you in all that we do. Father, thank you so much. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.